Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Scarlett Howard, a postdoctoral research fellow from Deakin University in Australia. She'll be talking about the impacts of urbanization on bees. In our five-minute management, we discuss mitigating the threat your bees pose to others, and we'll finish today's episode with our segment, Stump the Chump. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Scarlett Howard, who is the Alfred Deakin Postdoctoral Research Fellow for the Simmons Lab with the Center of Integrative Ecology. She is joining us from Melbourne, Australia, and she's part of the School for Life and Environmental Science. Uh, Dr. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on. All right. So today we are going to talk about the impact of urbanization on bees. So we're going to talk about honeybees and native bees. Uh, But before we get into that, Dr. Howard, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, as you said, I'm living in Melbourne, Australia at the moment, but I have worked all over the world with um, bees. So I've had a lot of opportunities to travel and yeah, do a lot of really interesting work with both native bees and honeybees. Um, I mean, I would say I first got my start with bees um, during university. I'd finished my undergraduate degree and I was looking to move on to a research project in master's. And I was actually extremely afraid of bees, uh, but I heard of this amazing project um, looking at how bees learn, honeybees in particular, looking at um, whether they could learn size cues, so larger versus smaller. And I um, heard about this, these things that they could do, like recognize human faces and, you know, discriminate between patterns. And I'd never heard of it, heard of that work before. And I thought I need to see this for real (laughs) and see if it's actually true. And um, so I picked the project, even though I was really scared of bees and immediately fell in love with the work, fell in love with bees and everything about them. So now I work across all different types of bee research. So I work on their cognition, um, their behavior, pollination and flower preferences. I did a year of working on their neurobiology um, at the University of Toulouse 3 in uh, France. And now I'm working on um, native bees and the impact of urbanization on both native and introduced bees in Australia. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting concept, right? This impact of urbanization on bees in general. I know that as someone who works specifically with honeybees, I know there's a lot of beekeepers who are are in urban areas and you see colonies popping up all over the place. But as humans continue to spread, as we continue to develop the areas in which we live, I can imagine that there's a lot of impacts of urbanization on bees. Can you tell us a little bit about the factors that are, you know, so what some of the roles that urbanization plays on impacting bee populations and health, et cetera? Yeah, so um, there's a fair bit of research in, uh, on this in different countries. Uh, Australia is quite lacking in it, but there is a bit in, um, in the US where you are. Uh, so mainly urbanisation is like a, a lot of different factors coming together, which can have like positive, negative or neutral effects on bees, depending on like the study that has been done. So um, urbanisation, you know, it, 
causes an increase in impervious surfaces. So that means that ground nesting bees can't burrow because there's, you know, cement or um, things they can't get through. Uh, temperature increases in cities, so local temperature increases. There's a, obviously a loss of habitat, there's pollution, um, there's more non-native flora and fauna that either compete with or um, take resources away from bees. And there's also, of course, increase in pesticide and herbicide use. Um, in particular, looking at bees, uh, the negative effects uh, we know would include things like lower flower visitation rates, um, low, lower species richness in more urbanised areas, uh, a loss of rare species. And um, yeah, as I said, a lot of that work's been done in the Northern Hemisphere, whereas uh, effects in the Southern Hemisphere are quite understudied. But there's also some positive uh, impacts of urbanization that have been recorded, or as I said, or some neutral impacts. So um, some bees actually do surprisingly well in cities. And yeah, those so the, there's, those there's, the, yeah. Are those the, pig, the pigeon version of bees? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, honeybees can do pretty well um, course, in yeah. urban areas, but then at the same time, there has been recorded wing asymmetry in honeybees living in more urbanized areas, and that's a sign of stress. So I think it depends on the species, it depends on the location, um, and it depends on the type of stresses they're facing in those environments as well. So those are all really interesting points that you've mentioned. Um, you know, I used to live in Orlando, which is a bigger city, I would say, you know, in Florida, especially, and I taught beekeeping there and worked with a lot of beekeepers in the city. Um, something that people were talking about were definitely you know, that, that the bees did well in cities because there were people in the city planting more pollinator plants. And so we were trying to teach them to plant more diverse flowers. And so, you know, something that people were also doing, they had raised gardens on their rooftops, but they also kept bees on their rooftops. And so I have heard a lot about this. I've seen rooftop beekeeping, and I'm wondering if you think that this is a, is this normal for beekeepers in the city is, I mean, where else are bees supposed to go? Um, yeah, it is actually quite normal in a lot of cities. So in Melbourne, um, where I'm from, we do have uh, beekeepers keeping cities on the rooftops. There's also universities that do the same thing. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I've read about it. I can't think of any specific other cities, but there are a lot of them throughout the world keeping bees on rooftops, like even Notre Dame in France. Um, they had bee, as we know, with the with the fire, um, the bees actually did survive it. But um, a lot of people weren't aware that they kept bees on the roof. So Scarlett, I'm really interested in, in some of the things that you said about urbanization leading to these potential impacts. So someone, you mean, clearly you've been looking at the literature on this topic and you're working on this topic. You know, you went over impervious surfaces, temperature increases in city, loss of habitat, pollution, et cetera, increased pesticide, herbicide use. So can you tell me what concerns you most about urbanization and its impact on bees? I, I think it seems like urbanization is inevitable, right? So it, it seems like it would behoove us to, to mitigate all of these impacts on bees. So, so what are some concerning trends that you see and what concerns you a lot about this topic? I will say first that, yeah, you're quite right. It, there are going to be a lot, there's going to be a lot more urbanization. Um, I think the UN's predicting by 2050 that about 70% of the world's population will be living in urban areas. Um, at the I think at the moment it's about 50%. I'd have to check that though. Um, but yeah, I guess the things that concern me most, just based on the literature, um, my work's still quite new, but based on the literature, the loss of habitat um, and habitat fragmentation by um, urban areas, that's quite um, a big problem in terms of bees, but also other animals too. Um, 
In Australia, we, and I think worldwide as well, um, looking at bees, we've got 20,000 bees across the world. In Australia, we've got 2,000 native bee species uh, with more even being discovered as we go. And about at least 60% of those bees are ground nesting. So they need to burrow holes into the ground and with in increase impervious surfaces, uh, that's just not possible for them. And they might um, be losing habitat that way, but also as new bees hatch and people do things like, uh, more mulching um, that, again, ground nesting bees can't get past the mulch. They're, um, they're losing places to actually nest and, um, yeah, reproduce. So, you know, something I didn't realize or something I guess I didn't think about were the ground nesters. You know, we focus a lot on honeybees and manage honeybee population. And now you're talking about urbanization and loss of habitat for ground nesting bees. Um, you know, I guess I have a couple, I have so many questions going on in my mind. And, and one is, you know, which bees are the, are the most vulnerable to this. And, you know, how do we, how do we handle this? What do we do for the, for the native ground nesting bees? Um, it's a really good question. So I'll start with the, fir the first part of that, which is which bees are most vulnerable. And I mean, you know, for example, the ground nesting bees, as I just said, they're, they're losing habitat with the impervious surfaces. Um, they're quite vulnerable in that way. Uh, but Another aspect of that is uh, more specialised bees. So there are generalist bees, which honeybees are, um, meaning they can feed on lots of different flower species. So um, they've got that ability and they do visit a lot of different types of flowers, which is great for pollination. Uh, but then there are these specialised bees that usually can only feed on maybe one or a few species of closely related flowers. Um, and some larvae can't, or some of their larvae can't even develop on any other pollen except the pollen of very specific native plants. And so those bees are also quite at risk when you consider there's things like the loss of habitat, um, more non-native flora coming in. So both of those, I would say both of those general groups are quite vulnerable and there's probably a lot more to say on that. But um, moving on to the next question, which is what can we do for the for the ground nesting bees, I would say, you know, if it's possible, mulch your gardens less, leave some bare ground um, cover for them to nest in if you're interested in having native bees in your garden, which hopefully you are. And then it, as always, and I think this is said a lot, is to plant more native species in your garden. If, you're, if you really want to get into it, you can have a look at what your local bee species are in your area and they'll be different for everyone and uh, find out what plants they visit. See if you've got any particularly rare species around and maybe try and plant to those species if you really want to get into it. But otherwise, you know, if you can leave some ground cover for them and plant more native flowers. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We have, you know, with the University of Florida, we have an entire landscape plant, you know, conservation for natural resources, and they're all huge advocates of planting native plants and promoting um, native bee populations by just again, planting plants and providing this space for them. Right. And so it's, I'm just wondering if there's I guess something kind of worldwide with the different types of native plants that there is. Like if someone um, from a different state or a different country wanted to find what native plants they could bring in, what would that look like? Where would they go to find that information? That's a great question. Um, there's a, probably a lot of resources out there um, and things that I've only just become aware of as well, even though I've been working with bees for almost eight years now, I think, um, in terms of like researching them. 
Uh, there'll be, you know, local or, you know, statewide entomology groups that you can find. I would say, especially in the US, I'm sure there's a lot of interest there. I've just um, joined one in uh, Victoria. So, um, and already I'm learning so much from them. Uh, again, even as a person who researches bees, I'm still learning so much stuff. So resources like that, have a look at local societies, local entomology groups, maybe local naturalist groups. And they might be able to give you a bit more information about it. Um, you can always email uh, people at universities as well. Like I, I know I'm very happy to answer questions from anyone in the public to, to help them encourage bees into their gardens and um, work on what they can plant, what sort of native bees they've got around. And if you have a look at the universities that are close to where you're living and there's an entomology um, department or something like that, yeah, I would say bee people, are, bee researchers are pretty friendly people for the most part, as far as I've seen, and um, they'd be more than happy to, to answer questions like that. So Scarlett, one of the reasons you seem so knowledgeable about this is this is near and dear to your heart, right? You've read a lot on this topic, but you've not only read a lot, you're actually be, uh, investigating this topic as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your work, your specific work related to this issue of urbanization impacts on bees? Sure. Uh, well, my interest in bees, as I said, started with honeybees, and they're a non-native species in Australia and in a lot of places as well. Uh, and then I sort of, as I went further down the honeybee rabbit hole, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have just falling in love with bees as you work with them more and more, and if you keep hives and that sort of thing. Uh, and then sort of getting onto native bees and talking to more people who are working with both honeybees and native bees or just native bees and finding out we have this huge diversity of bees across the world. It's it's usually when you think of a bee, you're thinking of honeybees, but there's so many other bees around. And so I became really interested in, especially particularly in the ones in Australia. Um, we have some quite beautiful ones, uh, with, you know, some with blue stripes, some that are called teddy bear bees and um, some that are huge, great carpenter bees up in the north. Um, so we've got such a huge diversity. But while there's really great research going on here in Australia with the native bees, um, there's a lot of things that aren't being covered. You know, we're, we're a continent in itself, but there's only so many bee researchers working. And um, what I found a, a big gap in knowledge is how urbanisation in particular was impacting native bees. And I wanted to come at it from a behavioural perspective because I've been working on honeybee behaviour for such a long time and I um, love watching how how honeybees learn, how they behave, and looking at the differences between individuals even. So I thought I'd apply that knowledge from honeybees over to native bees. So what oh, COVID really impacted my ability to do field work last year, I will start with that. But the plan and what I've partially started to do is have a look at bees from different types of urban areas. So um, taking native bees from either um, your high density urban areas, suburban areas, um, and then, you know, state parks um, that are, you know, have very native plants. And so they're, they're a more natural environment to the native bees and comparing their behavior. So things like their ability to learn, which is very important to bees. Um, they need to learn the location of flowers, the color of flowers, the scent of flowers that are rewarding to them that provide pollen or nectar. They need to learn where their nests are to make sure they can navigate back. They're really tiny creatures but they are so complex at the same time they're able to learn all this incredible information and store it and then apply it um, and also as, um, as a lot of research has shown they can then you know apply that knowledge to novel tasks so 
when you're living in a dynamic environment like like a city or like a suburban area where things might change really quickly like you might have a meadow that suddenly cut down you know someone's front yard where a bee is going to get all its flowers and then all of a sudden that's mowed down and you have to adapt and find a different place to find food resources so I mean my questions relate to for example, is the stress of the city, a city life for a bee, is that causing um, negative impacts on their cognition and their learning? So are they actually worse learners when um, when they're from the city? Or is it actually means that they're, those bees living in the city have to be more adaptive and they have to, they're more flexible and actually have better learning because the only bees that can, that can survive in highly urban, urban areas and adapt to change are those which have really good learning. So these are some of the questions I'm asking. Can't tell you any of the answers yet because I don't have them, but what I do know so far, um, and a paper that's just about to come out, so by the time your listeners are hearing this, it should have come out, um, I looked at a single bee species, a ground nesting bee, and um, was able to find that it learnt quite well in terms of flower colour. So it could learn rewards, I should say, it could learn um, to avoid certain flower colours if a predation event, so a crab spider attack, would happen. And um, that's sort of the basis of where I went ahead. So um, that was just in the suburban um, green belt, but um, building from that, knowing that already we, we can see, we can test these native bees on their learning abilities, like we do with honeybees. Um, yeah. Then we can do this big comparison. So I have two really silly questions. The first, I have so many questions now. There's no silly questions. <laughs> Let's put that out there. We could probably sit here all day. Jamie would probably be like, yes, this is a silly question. Okay. The first question I have is, so are these, they are solitary bees, right? Are they solitary or they live in colonies? Uh, they, I mean, there's a whole range of sociality. So okay. the bees I was just talking about, they're sem- like a semi-social. They nest um, in aggregations of females. So they're not completely eusocial, like honeybees living in the big hive with division of labor, but they're also not completely solitary. Got it. And then how do you even do research on their behavior? I mean, do you go out and catch them and bring them to the lab and, you know, show them a couple of colors and have them just point to which one they want? Or, you know, what does that look like? I I mean, basically you're, you're exactly right. Um, So for these native bees, and this was done like under, you know, up and down restrictions in Melbourne during COVID last year. Um, So at times I was able to go out and I could collect the bees in the field. Later on, I hope to actually do the test in the field when um when you know spring and summer rolls around in melbourne again uh but yes i collected from the field took them back to a lab area and then um, did some testing then i returned them back to the field because they're very important in the environment um so they were actually fairly easy to catch they're fast but once you get good enough at doing it you just catch them in a little vial bring them back um I've, i had apparatuses set up to to place them in Uh, These bees, unlike honeybees, honeybees are very easy to train because they're so keen to drink sugar water, the worker bees. And so we can just train them really easily with sugar water. These bees were a little harder. They didn't really want to drink any sugar water. So I had to adapt and change it to a predation event, which was just a squeeze with um, some soft forceps, so little pincers. Um, So each time they climbed, they were very attracted to the colors I showed them. So it was a blue versus a yellow color and easily discriminable by bees. And so if they were first attracted to the yellow colour, I would then, every time they went to the yellow colour, simulate a predation event by a crab spider, which is a predator to them. And over time, over 10 trials, I should say, um, of of that predation event, so either choosing the correct or incorrect colour, they learnt to to avoid the yellow colour and go to the blue colour instead. 
That is so cool. When I asked the question, I was totally joking, but now I feel like I could be a scientist. <laughs> I'll stick to communicating. You can be, Amy, you can. Instead. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, thanks for answering those questions. Um, so I guess my last question for you right now is just, you've already mentioned it a little bit, just mulching less and, you know, keeping more bare sand, but with our global increase in population, what do you suggest, what can our listeners do to minimize the impacts of urbanization on bee health? Look, that's that's a very complex question, I would probably say. And I mean, even in, in, in Australia, since we don't know enough about it, it's hard to actually say, uh, you know, some bees are actually doing okay. Um, I, again, I would come back to this idea of um, making sure that you're providing the resources. So not necessarily just flower, floral resources, which are very important, but um, other resources. So you've also got cavity nesting bees. So if you have a look at some great online resources, and I know um, Kip Prendergast at Curtin University has a great booklet on how to build a bee hotel, a native bee hotel, because a, a lot of the hotels you buy from um, you know, big stores and that sort of thing, they're actually not appropriate. They can spread disease. Um, because the holes are too close together. So if you have a look at some resources and there's a lot of people out there who know how to build a good bee hotel, um, you can, you know, put bee hotels in your garden. As I said, you can leave this bare ground for them to nest in um, by not mulching, not putting down plastic. I know that will annoy some of the gardeners who don't want weeds in their garden, but if you want some native bees there, it's a good idea. Um, and yeah, just if you really want to nail down the details, um, make sure that you do some research and find out what bees are in your environment. And I think the more people learn about them, the more likely they are to, um, to be really excited about helping them and um, moving forward on conservation plans. And the more they learn about them, like me, the more that you're just going to fall in love with them and, um, and want to just keep learning and keep finding out more new stuff about, about bees, both, you know, honeybees and native bees because I, I do love them both even if uh, some are non-native um yeah I mean that's that would be my advice just keep learning about them and see what you can do and try and make it you know specific to your area because bees differ all across the globe so I'm sitting here thinking about what what direction to take it because I have a couple of different <laughs> questions and they're very unrelated. And that's why I'm sitting here pausing, wondering what to ask you, Scarlett. So, so the, I, I'm going to go back, I guess, to something you said earlier before I bring it back to what I think maybe folks can do to help out. But earlier you were, you were mentioning that there were some negative impacts. You've discussed those. You're looking at those as well. There's some positive impacts and there's also some neutral impacts. And you mentioned some B groups, um, that might be particularly threatened in an urban setting, for example, ground nesting bees. I wonder, are there any bees or bee groups that tend to do well in urbanization? I kind of joked earlier about, you know, honeybees being the pigeons, right, of the, of the city. But, but in seriousness, are there groups or gen, generals do better? Do social bees do better? Do solitary bees do better somewhere in the middle? I mean, what bees actually don't seem to mind? urbanization if there is such a group of bees that that seems to not not be stressed uh this is a great question actually i've just got a grant from the herman slade foundation to look at this so to have a look at the intersection between urbanization um baby and how that affects bee behavior and morphology and where the level of sociality and whether a bee is a specialist or a generalist so is a bee that is solitary and a specialist 
more at risk um, of having these negative impacts than a bee that is a generalist and is, you know, more social. So either eusocial or, you know, semi-social. Um, and so I don't actually have the answer for you yet. Uh, but as for, I mean, as for the positive effects um, in, in different countries, there, yeah, there are positive effects. So there's sometimes um, higher species richness in more urban areas. There can be increased reproductive success um, compared to farmland. That was a, a particular um, study in 2018. Um, I can't remember the exact species, but I could look it up for you. And um, even there was um, a study across urban gradient, gradients in Africa as well that found that urbanization didn't actually impact the bee abundance or diversity that they found, although it did actually have a negative impact on some other insects like wasps and beetles. But for bees, um, there was, yeah, there was no impact on those particular um, tra traits that they were looking for. And then, and then more to kind of a, um, a management of this particular issue, since you've been talking about that as well, and, and some of the things that our listeners and others can do to mitigate this issue. So the University of Florida, where Amy and I work, is based in Gainesville, and Gainesville, probably like many urban areas around the world, it just seems to be exploding. There's new subdivisions going in all the time. And one of the things that frustrates me as a bee scientist or a biologist in general is I'll go driving down the, the road and I'll see that they'll bring in all of these plants that are not native when there are perfectly acceptable native equivalents. You know, here in Gainesville, as an example, they'll throw up a lot of non-native palms when Florida's full of native palms that are very attractive and useful to pollinators. And so it frustrates me a lot. And it seems like such a simple change that could be made. And then in the U.S., and I'm not sure, maybe you can comment on this in Australia, there's a movement towards designating cities be cities. And to do this, there has to be, you know, some focus on planting native plants and things like that. Do you feel, as someone who studies bees, do you feel that it should be uh, part of a city planning effort to plan for things such as bees, to allow uh, bee corridors that also provide habitat for other things, you know, birds and all of these things? It seems like the stuff that you would do to benefit bees would be of general benefit to a lot of pollinators and, and, and other animals, et cetera. So, I know, I know there's hardly a specific question in everything I just said. I'm just venting all of these things that kind of pop into my mind when I think about this issue. But I'm curious if, if you feel that there should be some concerted effort by the polit politicians and the administrators who are the ones kind of governing all of these things to make cities and urbanized areas more beneficial or better places for bees and other organisms to live in general, not just humans. I completely agree with you um, on <laughs> all of those points. I do think that everyone benefits when we're including nature in our city planning and our policies and our, you know, urban plans and planning for parks and outdoor spaces for people because having nature around, I mean, it, it sh that's beneficial for both pollinators as well as other wildlife as well in cities, but it's also beneficial for people. And I think people do really appreciate it when in, you know, a big urban wasteland, there's a, a lovely park that's full of native plants and animals because it, yeah, you know, I, I think particularly um, having been in this situation and talked to a lot of people in during the pandemic who were locked down and could only go five kilometers from the house that, I don't know if that happened where you are, but that happened in Melbourne. And um, we were restricted to, to five kilometers and just like two hours outside a day. At one point, actually, it was only one hour. And yeah, having these spaces where people could go and be in nature um, when they couldn't go anywhere else was incredibly important to mental health. 
And I think anything we do in terms of um, calling attention to the plight of pollinators as well as other wildlife in cities, um, it benefits everyone, benefits nature, it benefits people. So yeah, I'm, I'm all in favour of um, considering wildlife when we're creating these urban environments. And I think we can live together <laughs> with wildlife successfully, but it does take a bit of planning. It takes some effort and it takes some change. And we do need to see that. And hopefully we will be seeing that soon. Um, there's definitely places already big cities who are making efforts. Um, I saw a fair bit of it in Europe when I was living there. And um, yeah, there's some efforts in Australia as well. And I can't speak for the US, I haven't been there. <laughs> but um, yeah, there, there's a lot of passionate people about it as well, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I think a lot of the big cities here in the US, there are departments that are growing, you know, about sustainability and uh, sustainability landscaping and design. And so I love seeing that. And, you know, the other thing that I really love seeing are just, there are a lot of volunteers that come and help at a lot of these gardens, you know, they'll come and just make this place beautiful um, for the general public. And so I think that there's a lot to be said about, you know, gardening for in urban areas and gardening for native pollinators and uh, just generalists. So I'm, I'm super excited to see, you know, how we progress into the future and what big cities are going to start looking like, you know, because I do think that there's going to be a lot of change. Um, so thank you so much, Dr. Howard. Was there anything else that you wanted to discuss with us? Um, anything you wanted to share with our audience? Oh, that's a good question that I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I, I'm going to push this point again, which is just give yourself the opportunity to, to do a little bit of research yourself, just Google your local native bees and see what's around. And I think you'll be pretty surprised and hopefully maybe you'll be interested to keep looking because I, there's incredible diversity out there and they are such interesting animals. I think a lot of beekeepers um, can attest to the fact that keeping bees has, um, you know, improved mental health and makes them really happy. And um, yeah, for me, I, I love being around bees too. It's like, it's like a calming thing, um, even when research isn't going that well. <laughs> but yeah, get out there, have a look at bees, do a little bit of research and see if it's something you're really interested in doing and in helping bees in terms of this, uh, some of these um, threats that they're currently facing. That's great. All right, everyone. That was Dr. Scarlett Howard, Alfred Deacon Postdoctoral Research Fellow at the Simmons Lab at the Center for Integrative Ecology in the School for Life and Environmental Science. Um, she's coming from Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening to this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. questions or comments don't forget to like and follow us on facebook instagram and twitter at uf honeybee lab all right in today's five minute management five minute management we are talking about mitigating the threat your bees pose to others you know, Jamie, you and I have talked about how we love bees, but maybe other people don't love them so much. So those people are crazy people. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> All right. So you have five minutes to talk to us about how to mitigate the threat your bees pose and go.
And Amy, like always, we have a document on this topic. Um, we'll make sure and link it in the show notes. But Amy, there are 25 recommendations that I have, and maybe it's overwhelming. So I don't have a lot of time to talk about all these in detail, but I will mention all 25. And then you can go back and look at the document if this topic is of interest to you. So number one, locate your apiary and colonies away from areas where people and domestic animals frequent. In other words, keep your bees away from folks. That's a first good step in mitigating the impact your bees have on others. Site your colonies away from property lines. Don't put them close to the fence. That increases the likelihood your neighbors are encountered them. Number three, make your colonies inconspicuous. Put them in the backyard behind a tree or a bush or a fence or something that other folks can't see them. Usually out of sight, out of mind is the kind of thing we recommend here. Number four, if people can access your colonies easily, mark them with signage to signal their presence and to advise people to stay away. Number five, whenever possible, fence your colonies. Make it impossible for folks to walk right up to them. Number six, and a lot of folks do this in urban areas, is consider if root, rooftop beekeeping is an option for you. Sometimes keeping bees on flat roofs or decks up and away from areas is a good way to mitigate the impact your bees have on others. This is a sore subject for a lot of beekeepers, but let's be honest. We need to be reasonable about the number of colonies we'll put in, a, in an area. We get so excited about bees that our quarter acre yard now has 100 colonies in it, and that's just not okay, right? So use, use some, some, some basic courtesy with the number of colonies that you're putting on your property or in an area. Keep the densities low whenever possible. Number eight, tell your neighbors about your bees. Now, this is a debatable one. Some beekeepers say that the neighbors shouldn't know about your bees. I take the, the stance that they should know about your bees. And for that matter, I believe you should give them a jar or two of honey every year because sometimes that sweetens the deal as it, were, as it were. Number nine, do not take guests too close to your bee colonies if they are not protected appropriately. I've got a funny story about that, but I'll have to save it for another day, maybe the end of this. Um, but nevertheless, you shouldn't be taking folks up to bees haphazardly. Number 10, give only professionally conducted tours and public demonstrations of bees beekeeping. Another, that's kind of in hand in hand with number nine. You don't want to just take a school group to your backyard to show them bees. Make sure that they can all be protected. Number 11, consider having insurance. I think that speaks for itself. Number 12, a lot of folks like to use a sting waiver, something that you require folks to sign as they approach your bee colonies or work them with you. Number 13, be especially mindful when managing bees at public places. If you're keeping bees in state parks or other places, you just need to be aware that the public's going to frequent that area and you just need to be especially discerning in that particular circumstance. Number 14, you want to take similar precautions when keeping bees on private lands. If you're keeping bees on someone else's property, you need to assume that they're going to want to wander up to your bees and you need to protect them. Number 15, learn as much as you can about bee stings, how to prevent them and how to treat them in the event you are around someone who gets stung and needs your help. 16, provide your contact information to people who live near or frequent the area your colonies are. 17, whenever possible, register your bee colonies with the state's appropriate regulatory agency. That's intuitive. If you've got a state inspection program, register them with that program. 18, ensure your bees have a nearby source of clean water. If you do not, they will go to your neighbor's bird bath and pool. Take it from me. Number 19, use stocks of bees known to be gentle, 
right? Italian bees, as an example, are known to be quite gentle. Number 20, hand in hand with that, requeen colonies that get defensive. Number 21, ensure that your colonies have adequate food reserves so that they're not visiting sweet, sticky substances in your neighbor's yard to get them, soda cans and things like that. Number 22, do not place or leave anything in your apiary that's going to cause an apiary-wide feeding frenzy, especially if you live in an urban area. You know, putting out frames to be robbed is a major no-no because this creates a big cloud of bees that freaks people out. Number 23, practice good swarm control techniques so you're not dumping your swarms into your neighbor's trees or chimneys or walls of their houses. Number 24, always follow locally adapted best management practices, how you should keep bees in a certain area. And number 25, and finally, work your colonies in a manner that minimizes colony disturbance. You smoke, work calmly, try not to get your bees excited. If bees are in the middle of robbing season, reduce the amount of time you spend in that colony so you don't get bees stirred up. And I know that that was probably over five minutes, but there were just the 25 things to have to get out there. <laughs> all you folks out there, again, you can look at the document for more information on all of these. Okay. So you went a little bit over, but that was only probably three seconds over. Oh, And you also bad. in the middle of doing that said that you had a funny story. And so oh, now no. I have to ask you about that <laughs> funny story. Yeah. So my, my, wife and I, when we, on our very, the very first time that she ever came over to see me when we were just starting to date, um, I wanted to take her out to my grandparents' property where I kept my bees because, you know, everybody who keeps bees just super cool. And I wanted to show her how cool <laughs> I was because I kept bees and I had extracted honey earlier that day. So my grandfather and grandmother lived in a rural area of the county where I'm from. And so we set all these supers out to be robbed. I set all these supers out to be robbed after I'd finished extracting them, right? You put your, your, your extracted supers out there. The bees from the apiary will clean up those supers for you and get all the, the nectar. And so I know that bees are usually pretty uh, gentle during this circumstance. So I took my then first date girlfriend. Now she's my wife, my, but my first date girlfriend out to my grandparents' property, walked them up to the apiary and let her stand on the road. And I really wanted to impress her with how cool I was. So there's this huge cloud of bees swarming around this stack of supers that I'd put out there. And I was just going to walk up to them and just overwhelm this girl. They're like, look how cool I am. I'm so tough. I can walk amongst a cloud of bees and be okay. <laughs> well, Amy, I walked in there completely unprotected. And within two or three seconds, I got stung on the neck. And then I got stung on the face. And then I got stung on the face. And then I got stung on the neck. So I'm having to maintain my composure with this awesome girl who I was trying to impress who now I was worried about getting stung. And I'm like, uh, um, Amanda, maybe, maybe you should walk back. The bees are sort of stinging and I'm just <laughs> starting to get hammered on my neck and my face. And that led to that recommendation is don't take folks close to bee colonies or bee equipment if they are not adequately protected. Even if you elect to be a moron and not adequately protect yourself, don't, don't cause someone else to be a victim of your, of your, um, silliness there we you go, think she just say. kept dating you because you were, she know. felt she, bad for you i think that's it right <laughs> well, who, what's what's the dog that folks always adopt when they go to the the shelter they always get the the scrawny whimpery one because that's the one that looks like it needs the most love and that, i was probably that that chump when when amanda was was considering me for as as potential spouse uh, material <laughs> that is hilarious thank you for telling the entire world that story yeah yeah just, <laughs> i'm sure everybody wanted to hear it but there you go it's out there now <laughs> Thank you. The 
It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chump. Welcome to the question and answer segment. Today, we are talking about wax. All three of the questions that we had, Jamie, are about wax today. That's exciting. I don't think we've answered questions about wax so far on this podcast. It's all about that wax. About really? that wax, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the best okay. I can do. <laughs> I wasn't going to sing it. I was just going to say it. <laughs> you know, someone, they, they actually emailed us and they were talking about how they can just hear us smiling and laughing through our podcast. And, and I'm pretty sure this is a prime example of that time. <laughs> Should we tell them that we actually frown the whole time? The or, whole, should we, yep. or should we let them think that we actually smile while we do this? Yeah, we should probably, <laughs> I don't know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> okay. So the first question we have is this person had recently uncapped their honey and processed it. Now they're left with, you know, the cappings and basically just the pieces that came off. How, how should they process these cappings to basically turn them into bars or something that they can use later on? So, Amy, I don't actually get a lot of questions about wax. So it's neat that we have three in a row. And and this particular listener is basically saying, after I extract, I end up with some cappings and some other wax debris. And what do I do with it? Now, if this listener were asking as if they were a commercial beekeeper, I would have a different answer. But given they're asking basically as a hobbyist or a sideliner, based on the volume of wax, they mentioned that they're getting the answer is kind of simple. I always tell folks there's two ways, two pretty easy ways to render wax if you've only got a, you know, a smallish amount of it. The first of those ways is kind of doing it. What's what I call the double boiler method. You can't just put wax in a pot and expose that pot to heat because you can get uh, lots of problems with that wax. Instead, what you'll do is do double boilers. And if any of you out there make candy or confections, you're familiar with what I say. Basically a double boiler is a smaller pot that sits inside of a larger pot. And the larger pot has water in it that you put that larger pot directly on the stove or over some sort of heat source. And then the smaller pot goes into it so that it is the hot water in the larger pot that is melting the wax in the smaller pot. And once you have it completely uh, melted, at that point, it's really easy. You take the smaller pot, you pour the wax contents through something such as a t-shirt. I, I know a beekeeper who strains it through, you know, t-shirts that that's very common for folks to wear. It, it takes out all the debris or nearly all the debris, but it does take a while to pass through those t-shirts. Some people will strain it through cheesecloth or stockings or things like that, but whatever, you know, cloth strainer, you want to strain it through, you strain it through that into a smaller container that is essentially the mold. And once the wax cools in that smaller container, you'll have a block that's pretty clean. Now you could just pour the wax straight into that mold, but what you're going to find is a lot of the gunk and debris um, settle at the bottom of that wax. And so you'll have a block that's three, three quarters pretty wax and one quarter just gunky stuff that you're going to have to scrape off. The second way that I like to recommend the folks to deal with wax is using a solar wax melter. These are really simple um, items that you can purchase from beekeeping supply companies. The premise is real simple. The box itself is usually made of wood or some sort of material like that. It's got a glass lid and inside of that box, it's got a place where you can put wax, old frames, queen excluders, 
cappings, whatever this, whatever has wax on it, you put it in this wax melter and the sun through the glass melts that wax. There's always a screen at the bottom of that wax. The wax passes through that screen into some sort of mold, some sort of container at the bottom the wax goes into. And it's a second good way to render wax. Both of those are pretty easy. You can even make your own solar wax melters. You can Google solar wax melter um, instructions on how to build, find them online or purchase some equipment suppliers. So both of those are ways that I handle those kind of small amounts of wax that you would typically get in hobbyist or sideliner operations. All right. So the second question we have, again, it has to do with wax and it has to do with um, the the coloring of the wax. And so this person's asking, can you explain why wax looks so different from two hives in the same location? The darker wax, it's a second year, so it's a little bit older. Um, they, they had been used for a year and then cleaned after use. And then the other one is a new hive. So why would the wax, you know, why would the wax look different? Super easy questions. Glad that they were asked. So wax ages that's one reason that it can get darker the more bees that walk on it with their dirty feet the darker the wax will get so if 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 a comb has been used to make honey you know bees will store honey in it then you extract the honey from that comb when you put that comb in storage it'll usually stay almost but not quite white then when you put it back on the beehive dirty little footprints can darken that wax over time now the the listener said something that was very key there. How could wax from two different colonies look so different? The wax from my second year colony is darker than that of the first year. And that right there gave the answer away is that the wax is just a year older. It's got more footprint on it, et cetera. But I will point out wax that has had brood reared in it also darkens over time. In fact, all wax will start off nearly white when the bees produce it and form it into those hexagons. The very first round of eggs that's laid into that, the larvae emerge from those eggs. Those larvae actually um, spin cocoons, silken cocoons around themselves while they are developing. And that, as well as other debris and other things, can build up in those cells over time. So the more and more rounds of brood that's been reared in wax, the darker and darker and darker it becomes until it's virtually black. So the two ways wax can become um, discolored number one, it can be discolored just by age and use as bees get dirty footprints just over time. And secondly, it can be discolored the more uh, brood cycles that pass through it. So the fact that your second year colony has darker wax in your first year colony is exactly what I would expect to hear because that's certainly what happens over time with bees. Cool. So our third question um, this actually, for some reason, there were probably two or three or four people that emailed me the same exact question. So um, this, yeah, it was really strange that it all happened kind of at the same time. But this third question, uh, the listener was asking, so when extracted frames are returned to the hive for bees to clean up and repair, do bees use any of the wax debris in the comb repair process or is it rejected and removed? So it's Amy, it's actually some of both. Bees do use some of the wax debris in the comb repair process. So they'll go to that comb and they'll kind of smooth the edges, the edges that were created when you uncapped the, that, the honey, uh, un uncapped those cells that contain the honey. They will smooth the edges, use some of the wax to do that. But there is also some wax losses debris. I mean, just by virtue of dealing with some combs that have passed through the extraction process, Bees are, you know, working with loose ends and a lot of bees are working on it and there's movement around the comb. So inevitably some wax 
can fall to the bottom board of the hive and be kicked out of the hive as well. But a lot of it does get recycled and reused in the comb that they're repairing. Awesome. All right. Well, there we have it. Those are our question and answers. Everything was about wax today. Thank you so much. Don't forget to email us, follow our social media pages, and feel free to send us a direct message on, on any of the social media pages that we have. everyone. Thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Megan Winfrey, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. <laughs>